if you are just visiting with us today, uh, we are talking about money. Aren't you glad you came? You should know that we don't talk about money that often. But we do make it a discipline to talk about it once a year. We don't talk about money that often because we don't want to perpetuate the stereotype, one very common stereotype that's out there. And that is that the church really exists to get your money. But we do make it a discipline to talk about money once a year because, well... Why do we do that? The reason that we do that is because Jesus talked about money. A lot. More than heaven, more than hell. He talked about money. About one-fourth of the time, Jesus talked about money. And Jesus said that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And I'm a pastor. He's called me to pastor your heart. And that means I can't adequately pastor your heart unless I talk about where you're putting your treasure. Where you're spending your money. Uh, Also, we want to talk about money because, let's be honest, Jesus didn't just talk about money. You talk about money. And you think about money. A whole lot. Almost every day. The majority of marriages, the number one conflict in marriage is money. Not that I know that from personal experience or anything. Money is on our minds all the time. And I don't want to perpetuate another stereotype. The stereotype that the church really doesn't have a message that relates to your real life on the ground. Because I think it absolutely does. And so we need to talk about money. And we do it at the beginning of the year because this isn't a, this isn't a, we're running a deficit and we need you crisis moment to get in your money. It's not about that at all. It's about your heart. And it's about Jesus' lordship over your heart. So let's pray to him. God, as we talk about this Sensitive, touchy subject, a difficult subject for many of us. We ask that you would show us yourself because we need you. And you promise to come to us in your word. And so do that through the preaching of it, we pray. Amen. Well, here's where we're going this morning. We're going to look at the quest, the test, the punch, the power, and the promise. That's right. There are five points. So if you were not planning on coming to the congregational meeting at five, you might as well plan on being there because you will be here. (laughs) You're in. So first, the quest. Let me ask you a question. What do you want? That's a difficult question to answer, isn't it? What do you want? This man comes to Jesus and he wants something. Verse 16, he is on a quest. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What he wants is eternal life. And I think that's a good quest. For many of us, it sounds kind of juvenile. 
like a pipe dream, a waste of time. And yet, as much as we might think that, at the same time, the health and beauty industry is running at about $5 billion a year. So maybe we are obsessed with eternal life. We are looking for the fountain of youth through clean living and dieting right and low-stress techniques. But eternal life, it's not just when the Bible uses the word eternal life, when it talks about eternal life, it's not just talking about a quantity of time, eternal. It's talking about a quality of existence. And I can prove that to you. Look, in verse 18, Jesus says, if you would enter life. That is, he is suggesting that the young man is going to enter something that he is not yet in yet. That is, he's going to start something, not carry on something. It's not talking about his existence now that's going to go on and on and on and on. Because, you know, who wants an eternity of depression and anxiety? No one. That's not what this man is after. This man is after a quality of existence. That's why when we go on a little bit later in verse 21, Jesus says, if you would be perfect, which is a, I think, unfortunate translation. Better, because the man is asking, what do I still lack? It's if you would be complete, whole. If you would have a complete, a whole, a full, a fulfilling life, this is what you need to do. This is what the man is after. He's after a life of flourishing. So is our quest really different than his? Because I would wager that most of us are after that. When John Lennon was young, he was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he answered, I want to be happy. Blaise Pascal said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they do employ, all tend to this end. And what Pascal knew by intuition, Gretchen Rubin in her book, The Happiness Project, a New York Times bestseller, has shown through statistical analysis. When people... In a scientist, uh, when people all around the world were asked what they most want in life and what they most want for their children, the number one answer was happiness. I just want to be happy. It's why there's an explosion of studies recently in the field of what's called positive psychology. It's actually a new field. Do you know what it is? It's just the study of the good life. The scientific study of the good life and the factors that contribute the most to a well-lived and fulfilling life. I was actually recently asked to go to Anna Kappa School and speak on this topic. They wanted to hear from a religious perspective. I told them that the quest for happiness was elusive and a dead end. But you can ask me about that later. They weren't real happy about that, I don't think. (laughs) Alex mentioned last week, Alex uh, Watlington, who preached for us, he mentioned that uh, at Yale, they just had, they just finished um, the largest class 
that they've ever had. The enrollment, 1,200 students, one-fourth of Yale's population, undergraduate student population, one-fourth enrolled in Lori Lori Santos' psychology and the good life class, a class on happiness. And the books that are being put out are just, you can't keep track of them. See, we all want what this man wants. We all want eternal life. We might use different names and different terms and different words today, but we want what he wanted. So how do you get it? Well, that brings us to the test. The test, and Jesus asks two questions of the man. He puts two tests to the man to say, in order to enter into this life and have this life, you need to have these two boxes checked. First, verse 17, he says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the man asks in verse 18, which ones? Which is a really good question. Out of all the multitude of commandments that for our time and addiction, which one? Is it Jimmy Soul? If you want to be happy for the rest of your life, make an ugly woman your wife. Is it that commandment? Is it be kind? Be smart? Be successful? Which command is it? Be laid back and smart and kind and successful. Have a family. Which commandments do we have to follow in order to have a happy, fulfilling life? Well, Jesus, he doesn't leave us to wonder. He quotes from what's called the second half of the Decalogue. The Decalogue are the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments given by God through Moses to the children of Israel. And he quotes from some of them. He says, you shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. He says, then honor your father and your mother. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, if you want to be happy, then you have to fulfill the commands that have to do with neighbor love. That's why he summarizes at the end, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, if you want to be happy, love people, love your neighbor, which consequently all the studies are showing that people are happier who actually serve and love other people. The irony about it is what they don't actually seem to understand is that if you are loving and serving other people in order to be happy, you're not really loving and serving other people. You're loving and serving yourself, and they're just tools toward that end. But anyway, we won't get there. We, won't go, we can talk about that later. Uh, the elusive quest for happiness. Jesus says you need to love other people. The guy says, and not in some kind of vague, sentimental way. You love other people by actually fulfilling the Decalogue. You love other people by not taking from their life, but contributing to their health, well-being, and flourishing. You love other people by not defaming their character, but by promoting their character. You love other people by not taking what doesn't belong to you. You don't steal from them, but you give to them. 
You give people their due justice. That's how you love other people. It's not some kind of vague, floaty, sentimental thing. It's actually there in the Decalogue. But the man responds, verse 20, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And notice that Jesus responds with the second test. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, no, you haven't. He doesn't say, no, you haven't. A lot of us read the text that way. I used to read the text that way, but I'm not sure that we should. I think according to Jewish standards, keeping the law does not necessarily mean perfect fulfillment of every jot and tittle. Just like me, keeping the covenant with my wife doesn't mean that I always fulfill it to the extreme every day, all the time. We should take this man at face value. He loves his neighbors. But he still lacks something. It still lacks something. There's another test. What is it? What Jesus says to him, verse 21. If you would be complete, if you would be whole, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that a full life, a flourishing life. Is not just found in your relation to your neighbors in love, but it's also found in how you relate to your wealth and your possessions. That that is also important. Jesus is pointing out something. And what he is pointing out is this. That if you treasure something more than me. If you treasure your wealth and your possessions more than me, you will not be happy. You will not be fulfilled. You will not enter this life. And so the second test, it puts this question to us. To each and every one of us that is very penetrating. What do I value more? Jesus. Or my wealth and possessions. What am I not willing to give up for Jesus? Well, there's your answer. And there's my answer. See, Jesus knows something. Jesus knows that money is powerful. Very powerful. Money is so powerful that if you want to... If you want to go eat tonight anywhere you want to eat, if you have enough money, you can do that. You know, that? Uh, Damon uh, Barrel started a restaurant in 1989. It's actually in New York in his basement. It seats 20 people. Uh, the courses, you get a 15 to 20 course exquisite meal that he prepares himself based off his own land. And uh, and it's very exclusive and it's very hard to get in. In fact, if you wanted to make a reservation today, you couldn't because he had to shut down the taking reservations. Those who have reservations are now having to wait over 10 years. 10 years. Did you know, I bet if you have enough money, you can go eat there tonight. 
If you have enough money, you could eat there tonight because I guarantee you could buy someone's reservation from them with enough money. Or you could buy out the whole house and restaurant. You could buy him as your personal chef. Money is powerful. Jesus knows that money is powerful. And Jesus knows because of that, we mistake its great power for ultimate power. We mistake it for God. That's why elsewhere in the gospel, earlier in Matthew 5, he says you cannot serve God and money. Because money sets up a rival God in our lives. You see, we look to money to be and do for us what only God can be and do for us. We look to it for our sense of worth. That's why we say, how much is he or she worth? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that like we're talking about a you know a CEO of a company? We say, How much is she worth? We don't say how much are her assets worth, we say how much is she worth? Because let's be honest, we we conflate the worth and value of someone with their stuff. And we do it all the time. How they look, how they dress, what they own. Uh, in the movie Moneyball, there's a scene where Peter Brand, played by Jonas Hill, is talking to um, Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt. And Brad Pitt, this character, Billy Bean, has just been offered this tremendous amount of money to leave the Oakland um, baseball team. A's. Or Jose Canseco was, I know that part, and go to uh, go to um, play in Boston, the Red Sox. And uh, I'm now getting help preaching the sermon. I love this. <laughs> I can just walk off right now. Um, so he is talking about whether or not he's going to go there, and he's been offered this a tremendous amount of money. And Jen, uh, Jenna Hill's character looks at um, Brad Pitt's character and he says, "You'll take it." Not for the money. It's not about the money. But you'll take it because it's about what the money represents. See, the money represents your worth, your value. And he was right. We look to money to give us ultimate worth. We also look to money for our sense of security. That's why we call them securities. Trust. We look to money to perpetuate the illusion of control in an uncontrollable world. And it is uncontrollable and it is an illusion. Because no amount of money can ultimately help you beat cancer. It didn't help Steve Jobs. And we also look to money not just for ultimate sense of worth, not just ultimate security, but also for comfort. I think if I only had that, then I would have the fulfill, the happy, the fulfilled, the satisfying life. Someone once asked John D. Rockefeller, how much is enough? And he said, always just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And that's what we do, though. We think that if we have money, we're going to have worth. We're going to have security. We're going to have comfort. We're 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 going to have those things. Money's going to provide us with those things. 
and be and do for us what only God can be and do for us. But here's the problem. When we look to money to provide those things for us, no, it's not that we control money. Money starts controlling us. That's why Jesus said elsewhere, you cannot serve, serve God and money. See, because think about it, all your decisions, if you're looking to money for your ultimate sense of value and comfort and worth, for your sense of uh, security, then all your decisions in life will be dictated by money. The job you take. The spouses you're willing to consider. The places you're willing to move. The obedience you're willing to offer Jesus. And what calls are inbounds and what are out of bounds. See, money becomes a rival God. Money doesn't serve us. We serve money. And so the rich young ruler, as he's called, is given this choice. In verse 22, he chooses money. And I want you to know something. He went away sorrowful. He had everything in the world. Except the one thing. That could actually give him eternal life. A fulfilled life. A happy happy life. A satisfying life. What about you? Are you sad? Are you serving money? Why would he choose money over Jesus? Well, that brings us to the punch. You have to understand the punch. Verses 23 and 24, after the young man leaves, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Truly I say to you, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says, look. It is very difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And what is difficult in verse 23 becomes impossible in verse 26. So let me put it as plainly as Jesus does. It is not humanly possible for a rich person to be saved. That's what he says. It is not humanly possible for a rich person to be saved. Now that's shocking. It shocked the disciples. Look at verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished. They were shocked. And they said, who then can be saved? See, they got it. They got the sacrifice. They got the cost. They got what Jesus was saying. And that's why they're utterly astonished. But we read over it. It doesn't shock us. Why? For the simple reason that none of us are rich. We're not rich. Only 2% of Americans consider themselves to be upper class. Everyone's middle class. According to the Wall Street Journal, an article in the Wall Street Journal about five years ago, only one third of Americans making over a hundred thousand dollars a year said that they could afford to buy everything they need. 
Not want, need. And let's be honest, none of us think that we're wealthy, none of us think that we're rich, because we always know someone with more. If we, know, if we make five figures, we know someone who makes six figures. We know we make low six, we know someone who makes mid-six. We make mid-six, we know someone who makes seven. And we all know someone with, little, uh, with a little bit more. We rent, we know someone who owns a condo. And someone who owns a condo, we know someone who owns a house. So One-car family, two-car family. Public school, private school, we always know, and they're usually sitting down the road from us in the pews. And so because we compare ourselves incessantly with others, none of us think that we're rich. But here are the facts. One half of the world, or three billion people, make less and live on less than $2.50 a day. 80% of the world uh, lives on less than $10 a day. If you make more than $15,000 a year, you have more money, you are wealthier than 75% of the people in the world. If your household, not you individually, but your household makes more than $25,000 a year, just above the poverty line, then you make more than, you own more and make more than 90% of the people in the world. And if you make more than $47,000 a year, or your household, then you make more than 99% of people in the world. A few years ago, I was driving down Anacapita in the Upper East on the way to church, and there was this sign in the yard, and it said, you know, um, we are the 99%, like in the Upper East. And I thought, no, I got news for you. You're the 1%, and so am I, and so are most of us in here. We are rich. We are rich. When you look at the standards of history in the world, we are rich. And so, Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for you and I to enter, most of us in here, to enter the kingdom of heaven. So, how do we enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, that brings us to the power. The disciples asked the question, who then can be saved? And the logical conclusion of what Jesus has just said is that the only people who can be saved are those who give up everything. That's what he tells the rich man. Now, some people say, no, Jesus is not demanding that we give up everything. I think that's patently untrue. I think that Jesus is demanding that we give up and every one of his disciples gives up everything. He doesn't necessarily require that all of us give away everything. But he does require that we give up everything. You see, because what is at issue here is a sense of possession. You see, 
we feel like we own the money. And the money owns us. And what Jesus is trying to get us to see is that he owns everything. And we need to give it up to him and do with the money whatever he requires of us. And for some of us, yes, that could mean selling it all like the rich young ruler, giving to the poor and going and following him to some foreign place. For some of us, it means living right here. But for all of us, it means moving from the position of I own my money and it serves me in order to protect me and give me goods and services to I am a steward of God's money and he owns it all. And whatever he requires of me, it's his. This is what Jesus is calling for. He's calling all of us who would be his disciples to renounce ownership of their possessions and give them into his care and his lordship. Now, how do you do that? How do you give up all your possessions like that? What Jesus says in response to his disciples next is the most important thing you'll hear about Christianity. If you're wondering what Christianity is all about, it's in Jesus's response. So if you're here investigating Christianity, then listen up. In verse 26, Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And that's exactly right. Salvation, the salvation of anyone and especially the salvation of rich people, has to come through a miraculous act of God. That's the only way we get from point A to point C, because there is no B. There are no through trains. There were no through trains. You know what a through train is? A through train is where you go from one destination to the other without having a disruption, without having to get off the train, without having to follow some other course of action. There are no there were no through trains from God's promise to Abraham. And Sarah's barrenness to Isaac. There are no through trains from Jesus's humiliating death to resurrection. And there are no through trains. There is no processes of progress that can take one from clinging to resting in and relying upon money to clinging to resting in and relying upon Jesus as Lord. This has to come by God's miraculous agency. And that's what Christianity is all about. We are actually. At the mercy of God. To do for us what we can never do for ourselves. And to transform us. And to loosen our grip. On what is less than Lord. And get us to cling to the one who is the Lord of the universe. And none of us can do that. None of us has the power. Only he does. None of us has the power to save ourselves. Only he does and so we have to pray to him and cry to him lord loosen my grip and may i grab you but why would you want to do that maybe some of you're saying why would i want to give that up because of the promise 
that leads us to the promise. Peter turns after Jesus says this in verse 27 and says, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus answers, verse 28, Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging twelve the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone, so he was talking to his disciples, his twelve, now he's talking to everyone. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. The many who are first will be last and the last will be first. You know what the promise is? A hundredfold. That's what the promise is. But it costs you something. You've got to give up something. You've got to give up everything to gain it. Uh, a little secret about me. Confessional. Um, I really used to like the show What Not to Wear. And the show What Not to Wear is one of these shows where they take someone who is like a fashion wreck and their friends come together like, we really love this person, but they don't show on the outside who they are on the inside because they are just so bad at their fashion. And so they um, so basically these fashionistas come and they kidnap them and they say, like, look, we're going to give you a makeover and a wardrobe do over. And they cut their hair. They're going to make up all this. So, but they've got it. There's a, there's a catch. And here's the catch. And it's always the point where the person breaks down. When they hear that they're going to go on the shopping spree with all this money to get this new, like, wardrobe, they're really excited. But then they take them to their closet. And they get out a garbage bag. And they say, you've got to throw it all away. And at that point, there's, like, weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? It's like... <laughs> But I love those shoulder pads on my blazer. They were so amazing. And they're like, no, no, you have to throw that away. You know, they're like, but that T-shirt, I haven't washed it since 1968 when I went to this dead concert. No, you have to throw that away. You have to throw it all away in order to get this. And people have such a hard time. And I, I feel like that's us. Jesus says, look. Throw away your old beater clothes. Because I'm going to give you a hundredfold. New ones. Why? Why do we get a hundredfold? We get a hundredfold because we gain him. Notice what he says at the end. And will inherit eternal life. Which is really another's life. The life of Jesus Christ in you and for you. You get him. And he is generous and he shares everything he has with you. When I go to um, Dallas on this research fellowship that I've been able to do a couple of times, I stay with this uh, lovely family called the Hawkins. And whenever I'm at the Hawkins house, they just let me use everything. They let me drive their cars. They let me use their bike. They let me eat all the stuff they have in their fridge. They let me use their TVs. They let me use their stuff. They let me use everything. There's nothing that they have that they don't let me use. They share it all with me because they're generous. And yet I don't own any of it. But I can use all of it. 
All is mine, and yet it's not mine. But it's mine because of a relationship with them and their generosity. Do you know how much more generous Jesus is? Everything he has, he shares with you. He shares his death. I have been crucified with Christ. He shares his resurrection and his new life. He shares his righteousness. He shares his verdict, not guilty. And that is over you. He shares his anointing. In your baptism, you get the words, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. And that means he shares his calling. You are a prophet, a priest, and a king to God. He shares his spirit. He shares his power. He shares his sonship, which means he shares his father and he shares his glory. Father, may they share in the glory that we have had since the foundation of the world in his high priestly prayer. He shares his rule. And they will be kings and priests to God forever and ever. And he shares his inheritance, which is the world. And so when Paul looks at the Corinthians and he says, all things are yours, he is not kidding. Because you are Christ and he shares everything with you. This is the nature of God. Who was rich beyond all splendor. But became poor for our sakes. So that through his poverty, we might become rich. Would you follow him? Would you own him? And would you know a full, happy life? Not only in this age, but in the age to come. Amen.